Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1952 film High Noon. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great, Sam. Uh, Barrett, this is a movie that I had never seen before, but I mean, this is a movie I was very, very much aware of. Um, this is this is one of those films that just sort of gets uh, gets mentioned when people talk about um, westerns, when people talk about american films this this is there is there is something very uh core in this film so i was really excited to watch this um what is your history with this film when did you first encounter it gosh you know i was trying to think about that because it's one of those films where it's a little bit like it's a wonderful life it's hard to know when it first entered your consciousness i i must have seen it back in high school um but i really don't have it i really don't have a clear recollection but i saw at some point in the past uh, made an impression on me, um, and then, but I can't, I can't locate it specifically. Yeah, I think I was first made aware of it. This is something I say a lot on this show. Uh, when the, in, when the original AFI list came out, this was right around thirty, somewhere around there. But I remember, um, I think it was even Tom Hanks on that show talking about it, and and just like uh, realizing that this was kind of this this spoke to I mean it, it speaks to something about the west to something about america it also speaks to something about the 1950s in america i was talking with one of our european historians uh, here at bethel chris gertz and he had mentioned when i mentioned that we were, we were going to be talking about high noon he says oh yeah i really want to do a cold war film series and high noon would be would be one of those um uh, one of the films he'd want to talk about there which is really interesting because it very much is rooted in the cold war even though it takes place in you know in the 1800s uh, uh you know in that way one thing that i found interesting about this um was the names that get associated with it um one of the reviews it might have been the bosley crowther review talked about kind of who do you credit this movie to and it was going through all these different people so i i was interested in the fact that the name Right out at the front of this is the name of the producer, Stanley Kramer, yeah. who we, we encountered uh, a few weeks ago. Um, and it seems like Kramer gets credit way more than Fred Zinneman does the director. And I was curious about, uh, and maybe this gets into the narrative of where this film comes from. Why is, why is, in this case, the producer very much at the forefront of this? Well, I think I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, one, one reason is, as you already alluded to, it, it's a Cold War film. And so it it comes out at the time when the House of Americans Activity Committee is really fully engaged in its activities, and the the screenwriter Carl Foreman um, ends up getting black uh, is blacklisted, and so there's there's conflict between him and Kramer over who is kind of really responsible for the for, for the film. So there's a lot of uh, wrangling about the production of the film that kind of I think it creates a narrative that overlooks. Zinnemann's uh, significant role, role in the film. And also, of course, Kramer, as we talked about, the Defiant Ones, was kind of known for making films or producing films that have some kind of a strong social content. So I think that, that narrative, um, especially the Carl Foreman being named as an unfriendly witness before HUAC, I think that probably brings the production of the film to, to, to the fore. Okay, because I have to say, as I was reading, especially... Uh, reviews that came out at the time i read a couple of them and then I, I had to go back and say he didn't direct this movie <laughs> because because right. it's it's sure it just seems like in the same way we were used to reading about directors and their hand in it that the um that that kramer was was sort of very much at the forefront uh there um gary cooper is somebody i'm not 
I know a little bit about sort of his his Hollywood story. He goes back uh, pretty early in 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 the days of Hollywood. Um, and by 1952, who is he? He is uh, he is a big deal. Um, as you said, he goes back to the silent days. He started out in 1925. Uh, has no had no formal training as an actor. Um, kind of compared to John Wayne in that respect. You know, starts out as a stuntman. But he gets cast in the 1930s in a whole bunch, whole bunch of different genres uh, in which he really does well. I mean, he's in screwball comedies, he's in westerns, he's in war films. So by the end of the 30s, he's one of the top, uh, top build stars in Hollywood. Um, he uh, wins an Oscar for, um, uh, for Sergeant York. Uh, and uh, he gets nominated for uh, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. He gets nominated for Pride of the Yankees, for whom the bell tolls. So those are all uh, early to mid mid forties films. So by the time he comes to we come to High Noon, he's kind of um, I, I guess I would compare him to a De Niro or a Pacino at the height of their career in terms of, of where he is in, in his career. Uh, he becomes increasingly associated with with westerns. In fact, one of his first big hits was the was the Westerner. Um, he was known for this kind of, as I already indicated, this, this naturalistic um, acting style. And, and one of the things that a lot of people said about Cooper, which is really interesting, is that if you watched him, if you're on the set watching him, you think like, well, there was kind of nothing there. It wasn't that particularly exciting. He was fundamentally photogenic or telegenic. And then once you watch the rushes, you were like, wow, something really interesting uh, is, is going on. Uh, he was also, we talked about this with John Wayne a little bit uh, when we did uh, True Grit. He was also seen as kind of the, the classic American hero. Like Wayne, he was conservative in his politics. He was from the West, he was from Montana. Um, but significantly, he actually stood up for Carl Foreman uh, so when they had, he was the only one that reached out to Carl Foreman when Foreman was blacklisted by Hueck, whereas people like John Wayne completely distanced, distanced themselves. In fact, they distanced themselves from the movie. They, uh, they disliked the movie, uh, said it was a, a terrible piece of un-American, um, uh, film, filmmaking, whereas Cooper hung in there with both the movie and, and with Foreman. So he was a person who was really kind of tremendously respected in Hollywood for his integrity. And it was felt like that integrity came out in his roles. So you say that he goes on to do a lot of westerns. Is this this had he done a lot of westerns before this, or was he kind of all over? Like I'm trying to think of like who is his persona and how does this movie play with with his persona? Yeah, he, yeah, he, yeah. He he had done a number of westerns before. Uh, the silent films that started out in were westerns, and I, he made something called the West the Westerner in in the late 30s or so. So yeah, he was associated with westerns, but not exclusively. Okay. It's, it's much more like he after he loved High Noon and he just and so he moved in he moved much more in, into westerns towards the uh, towards the end of his career uh, a little bit like uh, Joel McRae uh, who we saw long a long time ago in Sullivan's Travels he moved into exclusively westerns the last uh, the last 20, 20 years uh, one of his last one of Cooper's last films was in fact called Man of the West uh, which is really high, pretty highly regarded I have not seen it but it's I'd love to. Yeah, I have to say, as I was watching him on the screen, and this is this is mostly visual. I'm not I'm not uh, adept enough to talk about acting or anything like that. But there were moments where where he looked strikingly like, um, especially older roles of Tommy Lee Jones, like like mm -hmm. where, where there again where there's is this like he seems very much at place in the setting of that movie. Um, you know, I think about I think about Tommy Lee Jones, and I'm 
something like no country for old men there yeah. there are moments where where they're almost in their faces are almost indistinguishable uh in this uh, that's which i i i I re- that, that that gave me sort of a, a comparison point, at least for like visually thinking about him. So you talked about Cooper being, you know, being conservative. He's friends with John Wayne. Why is Cooper drawn to this picture when others? I mean, this this Cooper was not the first choice for this movie by far. This was floated around to a mm-hmm. lot of people. So, I mean, so John Wayne turned it down. Gregory Peck, Marlon Brando, Montgomery Cliff, Charlton Heston. A lot of people were looked at for this. What? And maybe you don't know this, but what drew Cooper to this or why did he hold on to this movie when others were were distancing themselves from it? Because it doesn't match his politics, as you said. No, but I think, you know, I, I think the reason for that, and I, I did run across a, a comment that Cooper made some, somewhere about it. And that is, I think for Cooper, the character that he's playing, you know, that, that, that Will Kane represents a kind of integrity. And so I think whereas some people saw the film, those who disliked the film, saw the film as um, un-American because it depicted the citizens of the town as uh, unable to take care of themselves. And, you know, John Wayne said something like, this is ridiculous. These people, these are pioneers. These are rough, tough people. These are the people who made Tombstone, we might say. There's no way they're going to be literally living cowards like this. So that was one lens through which to see the film. But Cooper saw it the different way, right? He saw it. This is the story of a man of integrity who recognizes that he has to stand up for what is right and and wrong. And it's interesting in the the, the debate in the church, which is one of the highlights for me of the film, you know, one of the issues that's brought up is this isn't our fight. This is, this is the Marshall's fight. This is a personal vendetta, but, but Kane and Cooper won't see it that way. They say, no, this is about law and order. These people are coming in to, uh, to shoot up the town and we're not going to let that happen. The fact that it, that he's involved personally, he doesn't separate, his person from his role as, as, as Marshall. And I think Cooper saw that as really, really admirable. And I suspect the other thing he liked about it was that, yes, he's a man of integrity, but he's not, um, he's not a cliche. You know, he's a man who betrays his, his fear. He, uh, he sweats, he gets nervous, he runs around. And that's something else John Wayne hated. John Wayne hated the idea that he was running around town like a chicken with his head cut off trying to get help. And I think Cooper just saw this as, as, uh, as, as realism. Yeah. I mean, what's funny is before I read about the film, just after having watched it, um, so I didn't know those criticisms, especially even the, 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 the phrasing of this is, this is on America. Like in my notes, I wrote, this might be the most American thing I've ever seen in terms of like, like if you wanted to, if you had to pick one movie to say, how do Americans think about themselves? It's like, <laughs> you know, this isn't that bad of a choice to be like this because, because there, I mean, there is, he's almost a stronger character and not just storytelling wise, but in terms of like strength of conviction in that we see him actually leave and then come back and then we see him like contemplating leaving again and we see him sort of realizing like okay i'm gonna go face these guys and i'm gonna die right like like to me that is that makes him stronger i i was um last week i was teaching a class and we were talking about um we were talking about homer and i was so so i had homer on on my mind as i was watching this and it's like even the even the things that we see uh uh will kane wrestling with like arguably you could i could point to scenes in homer where you're seeing hector and achilles doing that same thing so i mean achilles spends most of that 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 book thinking should i go home or mm-hmm. do mm-hmm. i stay and fight and hector has 
a conversation with Andromache where they're having that same conversation about like, do I leave and, and, and be with my family and protect my family or do I go and fight? So it's like, in some ways, these are the most classical Western, not in terms of American West, but just like, like Western core themes about um, at least about masculinity and manhood, if not about what it means to be a person in the West. Yeah, Sam, that's a really, really interesting and, and, and insightful connection because uh, Fred Zinnemann said about the film, he said, High Noon is not a Western as far as I'm concerned. It just happens to be set in the Old West. And so, and that was one of the other reasons why the film um, is both groundbreaking and kind of surprising. And it's really not, when audiences go to a Western in 1952, this is not really what they expect. Um, you know, one of the things the film does is the cinematography is quite different from, say, a John Ford Western uh, or quite different from the cinematography we saw in, in Paper Moon. Um, there's no there's no filter. Uh, so the black and white images in this film look quite different from the black and white in, in, a, in a filtered uh, black and white film. And that's because Zinnemann's one of the reasons is because Zinnemann's roots were in documentary filmmaking. He was very influenced by Robert Flaherty, one of the great original documentary filmmakers, made a great, great silent film in 1922 called Nanook of the North. Uh, and so Zinnemann kind of cut his teeth on social realist films. So first of all, so the look of the film is not what people expected. It's very raw and documentary-like. Um, when people go to a Western, they expect a lot of action. Uh, there's not a lot of action in this film. There's a lot of Will Cain running around talking to people. Uh, he gets into a couple of fist fights, uh, but that's about it. And then you get the shootout at the end. So there's a lot of, it's a very talky Western uh, for, for a Western. And then the other thing the film did that was new was um, introducing the, uh, the title song, uh, High Noon, also somebody's known as Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. That that never been done before. Uh, nobody had ever composed a, a song like that, that then if you read the lyrics of the song, it basically tells the whole plot. Uh, of the film. And so I'm thinking about the fact that when we watched uh, True Grit, you know, several months ago, uh, the opening song sung by Glenn Campbell is really modeled on what's happening in, in High Noon. So in all those ways, it's almost, okay, this is a stretch, but it's almost as revolutionary for the Western as Citizen Kane was uh, in, in, its, in its time. I love, okay, and I want to talk about that opening and I want to talk about the song because my initial impression um, was one thing and then I came to I came around on it to say actually I think this might be brilliant because when when the when the movie opens there's a it's, a it's a weird choice because there's a lot of silent I mean there's the song is playing but otherwise it is silent there is no sound natural to the world as we're seeing the gang outside of town getting together and then coming into town and you just hear this song which is so clearly written for this movie because it even references frank miller so it's like okay and i and and, and in my head i thought i this is not good like I, I i thought it's kind of cheesy then i realized as i was watching the movie that the score is based on that song so yes. like even when you're hearing kind of the orchestral score it is versions of that and that even the then like the the kind of folky country version of the like lyrical version of the song also cuts in and out throughout it. And here's what I thought about with that. And, and, and maybe I'm wrong here, but so it's sort of like they give you this song and it's almost like these are the, um, okay, this is, this is me just thinking here. It's almost like, cause you hear that a lot when you see Will walking through town as he's going from place to place, you hear the, the, 
even like part partial parts of the lyrics of that song come back. And it's almost like this is the song running through Will's head mm. because he's convincing himself to do something. Mm. So it's like he's aware of the myth of what he's supposed to do. And this is convincing him to do it all. I mean, I realize that's not actually what's happening, but in my head, it's like that that actually was really effective because I felt like it was putting that song in my head. But then every time I would hear it, I would be seeing Will walking somewhere. And it's like, it's almost like he's telling himself this story of like, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I need to do. And he's trying to convince himself in some ways to be brave enough to do it. I actually thought that the stuff with the score and the song turned out to be something I hated when I first heard it. And then by the end, I'm like, that was brilliant. Well, we should we should mention it is the second Western in a, in a row which has used a uh, which has used a song as a kind of a theme. Uh, although my darling Clementine works quite 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 differently. Um, I should also say, and um, I I was not aware of this, and maybe this is just of interest to my generation, but I did not realize that Tex Ritter, uh, who sings the song, um, was the father of John Ritter, uh, uh, the, the actor. Uh, which really? I, I did not know, and and, and while I'm at tri- while I'm at uh, connect connections, another one is the cinematographer Lord Lloyd Crosby is the father of David Crosby of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. So wow, <laughs> interesting Hollywood connections in this film. So that, that that's fascinating. Um, so so we get that 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 again. It's weird to call it a silent intro, but it is this this silent, and it goes on for a while. Um, and I was struck by, do you remember the sound that? that is the first natural sound to the world that breaks through that. Cause it I goes back remember. to my darling Clementine. It's church bells oh, because okay. so when we talked about my darling Clementine, we talked about, I mean, yeah. they don't even have a church yet, but they've erected the steeple and the bells. And that's a sign of civilization coming to this place, right? Mm-hmm. And the civilizing force. So here we hear church bells to tell us this is already a town that is quote unquote civilized, right? It already has these, these things. So it tells you, well, this is a different kind of movie. This isn't mm-hmm. about somebody who's bringing civilization. It's about somebody who is, it's about how tenuous situ- uh, civilization is, you know, that it can, it, it, that it could easily be lost. And it's about somebody who's walking that edge to say like, what is my job in maintaining the things that hold us together as a civilized people? Or are we going to reg- regress or slip back into this kind of lawlessness? Because Frank Miller represents the lawless times of the town. Right. But, but that whole drama is already played out before we get here. Yeah. Although, yeah. So, but, but again, it's another connection to tombstone and my darling Clementine in that sense. Right. Because part of the debate in the church is yes, exactly. What you're saying they don't you remember when Will King came, it wasn't, this wasn't a safe town for people to walk the streets, but, but that's also a really interesting dynamic, right? Because when he goes into the saloon and tries to recruit guys, it's like, who are you talking to, Will? You know, we kind of liked it when Frank Miller was running things around here. So, you know, so there's always a sense that um, you can slip back into into disorder. And it's clear that the, the citizenry looks to, it's kind of almost a great man view of history, right? The citizenry kind of looks to the marshal to be the person to hold things uh, together. And so, so we get the, you know, we get them riding into town. And, and what I love about that is we also, the first time you're watching it, you don't realize this, but you're introduced to almost every character as they ride through town and you get to see their reactions to um, to Ben Miller and the other the other two riding riding through town. Um, so I, I really that was so when I, I watched this one a second time and I realized how how great that first five minutes was to set up so many of the pieces. We see the um, the the introduction, you know, we see the, the wedding. 
Um, and, and we see Kane leave and then sort of have this crisis of conscious moment as he's, as he's riding and, you know, and, and turns around and we'll see that doubled uh, at the end of the movie when, um, when Amy is sitting on the train also like ready to leave and then has this crisis of conscious moment um, kind of thing too. So I, I really, I really like that. Um, and I love when he first gets back to town, the scene with the judge, mm-hmm. I thought that was, was, um, was really really interesting and again this ties it back to the fact that this is this is a western in the sense of like the west because the judge his example is you know i think he actually means sixth century athens he says fifth century but it's sixth century athens with tyrants like pisistratus and like who leave and then are brought back uh and uh you know and 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 the judge is like this is this is a kind of this this cycle that happens in human beings And, and we hear a little bit of that also when he talks to the the Lon Chaney Jr. character, the old marshal. These are the people who have um, been around long enough to have a particular view of humanity, which, you know, that they, they're they not sure that they that they really have trust in people, where, where Will still has a little bit of that, you know, as he's at least assuming the town is going to be uh, rally around him. Well, you know, it's, it's really interesting that, you know, that the various arguments are made throughout the, the film for why he should leave, obviously, you know, so you have, you know, you have historical precedent, you have the argument that he's actually endangering the town by staying. And, and it's interesting, there's never any hint, um, either on his part, or on the part of the people who are trying to persuade him, there's, there's no hint of cowardice. There's, there's, there's no issue that it's in any way cowardly or wrong for you to run away. Uh, in fact, it might be the right thing to do to run away. So, so it's, it's really, and of course, you've got the added uh, appeal of Amy, uh, you know, that if, uh, if, you, if you stay, I'm, you're, you've lost me. So it, it's, it's interesting. You don't often see a character being told that it's actually the right thing to do to, uh, uh, to, to be derelict towards what you, you regard as, as your duty. So it's a very interesting kind of inverted moral dilemma. Like maybe it's the wrong thing to stay. And, and, and display your, 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 your integrity. So again, that gets back to why that, that role appealed to Cooper. I mean, that's, that's an incredible act of heroism because everybody is telling you, it's okay, run away, you know, but he's, he's not going to do that. Right, because so much of it is framed around the um, sort of safety or security in, in numbers or in the group. So like I think about the, the Herb character who is the, the, the person who picks up the star uh, and is, mm-hmm. you know, happy to be a deputy until he realizes he's the only one. And then it's like, wait, wait, I was doing this because they were going to be a bunch of us. If there's not a bunch of us, then I'm not going to do this. Um, you know? Yeah. I mean, just, just, I, I kind of made a list of the different arguments people sort of make it like, like why? Cause everybody knows that will is right. Mm-hmm. Kind of, but then there, you know, there, there are sort of these other things. So you have the the Harvey Pell character. The I, I love seeing Lloyd Bridges in this movie. Uh, <laughs> a young young Lloyd Bridges. Speaking of people who are parents of of other yes, <laughs> you know, other other celebrities. You know, his is like is this this personal um, uh, feeling sort of personally offended by the marshal that you know he didn't put in right. a good word for him, and he's trying to leverage this opportunity mm-hmm. um, you know, to, to do that. You have the uh, we have Harry Morgan back in this movie, right? And he's like, he's just fear, right? I mean, he's yeah. he's literally hiding and sending his wife out 
Um, you have the saloon keeper and the hotel clerk who are kind of saying, actually, things were better before. Yeah. You know, it, it in that way, it kind of reminded me of stories like uh, like Camus' The Plague, right? That it's mm-hmm. like this bad thing is happening. But there are certain people who yeah. it's like during these chaotic times, those are the moments when these opportunists actually, when they can thrive. Um and and I think, like you said, I think that the, the, it all builds up to the scene at the church because there's actually so many arguments. One of them that jumped out at me the second time is they actually even question if Will Kane is a legitimate authority because they're like, yes. "Didn't are you still the marshal? Because right. if you're not the marshal, if you've resigned your post, then actually you're be you're doing the illegal yeah. thing in you know in doing this. At the same time, they're making the argument of why don't you just go arrest those three guys now? And he says, "Well, they haven't broken a law." You know, so, so it's like they're trying to make make all these arguments, and you see the 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 pastor, you know, kind of hiding behind the Bible a little bit, saying, "Well, I can't tell my parishioners to go out and kill people," and it's like, okay, yes, technically that's true, but that doesn't see it. It seems like you're conveniently making that argument, and that there are other moments when you would, and you're so, yeah, and then and then there's also the blaming of the politicians, like, ah, oh, this is the problem is. It's the, the politicians up north. And the most interesting argument, and this is the one you were getting at, is the one where they say, you know, there's, we are this civilized town and there is this money that can come in and help, you know, uh, help build us up. But if they hear about killings here, they're just going to look at us as this other, you know, rowdy backwater town. So if you stay, there's going to be a shootout. If you leave, He's got nobody to shoot. So like, it's actually better for the town. If you go, it's more peaceful for the town. If you go, it's like, they're making these short-term bargains, even though they know what that's going to mean. I mean, and actually, Sam, that's not an implausible argument. I mean, I mean, if you think about it, if you, if you think about, you know, you're really following the letter of the law, that is actually the right argument. He's no longer the marshal. And so he should just leave town. Frank Miller will, we don't even know if Frank Miller will try to take over the town again. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. We don't know. So Frank Miller rides into town. There happens to be uh, this period between you know, the old marshal leaving and new marshal coming in. So we'll see what happens. The new marshal comes on Monday and we'll see if Frank Miller is there for him to deal with or not. I mean, it's a pragmatic argument, but it's also, it's also a pretty sound legal argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, let's respect the pardon. If, if Miller got pardoned, then he's pardoned and we have yeah, to treat him yeah. like a citizen. Yeah. So, so, I mean, so there, there, there is a way in which um, even though I do think Kane is standing up for law and order and, and his responsibility, I do think it's uh, it can't be separated from the fact that this is a, this is also a personal vendetta that he has mm-hmm. to stand up to so and well, you and could also argue you could also argue that he is uh that he is not uh respecting his recent vows he's mm-hmm. made a vow to amy that to, uh, to be with her you know so so her her position is not really untenable in fact it makes a lot of sense you're my husband now you've pledged your troth to me let's get out of town so we can live together absolutely and 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 you know and and that's getting at i think the the two most interesting characters in this movie are helen ramirez and amy like that like if they weren't in this movie this would be a real this would be a really good movie but it wouldn't i don't think it would be as great if you didn't have those two characters mm-hmm. um because they ha- i i feel like they're they're people that i don't know that i've seen on screen exactly in that same kind of ways and they're people who have to make really difficult choices and are uh, and 
they make difficult choices, but they're not necessarily forced to make those choices. They are choosing to make those choices. Mm-hmm. Um, and but they are also choices which compromise them, you know, the, where they have to make some compromise choices as well. So I find I find both of those characters um, really, really interesting. Um, and I loved that for the first half of the movie, they are separate characters who are connected through people. But then there's just this moment when they're in a room together and they're laying out not what the other people need to do, but what they need to do themselves and, you know, may start making decisions for themselves and saying like, you know, we are, we maybe don't have a lot of power in this world, but there are certain ways that we do have power and we can exercise that. And they also, I mean, that confrontation between the two of them is the, um, is an echo or a mirror of the confrontation between uh, Kane and, um, and and Miller, right? So the, the, the two women kind of have to have a, a standoff. And, and it's interesting that, you know, Kane has his own past. Um, so so he, there's a personal involvement at, at an even deeper level because of his connection to, to Helen R- Ramirez. And so I, I really think it's, I, I think it's great you pointed that out, Sam, because women have an agency in this film in a way that they 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 don't have in a lot of other westerns i mean it's it's interesting in some senses the amy character here is very much like clementine uh in in tombstone uh finding ways to kind of assert her own her, her own authority so this connect this and helen ramirez is actually a significant business per, business woman in, in in the town which is really remarkable because unlike tombstone which casts out anybody who is not basically white uh this is a this is a, this is a town further along in its development and helen ramirez runs a saloon that people appreciate and so she stays in town and as a as a legitimate businesswoman so so there's certainly an advance in in that respect i also wanted to say briefly that the actress um Oh, I could never possibly pronounce her actual long Mexican Spanish name, but she became known as Katie Gerardo. Um, she becomes a very important supporting actress throughout the 1950s and usually in, in Westerns. So this was uh, her first role in English. Uh, she studied uh, English for two hours a day for two months so she could speak English. And a lot of what she did was phonetic. But I, I thought she was she was she was great. And she went on to, uh, she got a Golden Globe Award for Best Supporting Actress for the the film. Uh, She played uh, in uh, film Broken Lance the next year. Uh, And she just went on to have a number of really significant roles. She was the first Latin American actress to actually be nominated for an Academy Award later later in her career. So this is a breakthrough role for her. It's also the first, um, it's only the second movie role and the first fairly large role for uh, Grace Kelly. a lot of people don't think about the fact that Grace Kelly's career was very brief, 1952 to 1956. And so this is this was really kind of a breakthrough role for, for her. And I think in terms of thinking about the Helen character um, and, you know, and, and having agency, I think there's um, the scene where where Harvey comes back. And he's so, and he's basically, it's like, he's, it's like, he's trying to play out certain roles, which are expected. And he's like, I will protect you. I will save you. And she rejects him. And, and, and she says, I don't want anyone to touch me unless I want them to touch me. And she, mm-hmm. she pushes him away to be like, I don't want you to protect me. And she is somebody who's going to take care of, um, going to take care of herself. And then, you know, and she, and then she gives, she gives advice to Harvey about what, what manhood is, right? She says <laughs> yes. it takes more than big, broad shoulders to be a man. And she's looking at, um, 
at Kane and saying like, you know, the, if, if, if he dies, this town dies with it, you know, like, so, so he's, he's trying, she's trying to teach her about, mm-hmm. or she, she's trying to teach Harvey about, um, about real manhood, real masculinity, where Harvey is performing these expectations. So I find that, I, I find that really interesting. Um, and then we have the, you know, the, the moment where, where Amy and Helen are talking and, uh, you know, Hel- Helen, Amy lays out sort of why she becomes a Quaker, why she's a pacifist and talks about her father and her brother and says, you know, I don't care who's right or who's wrong. There's got to be some better way to live. Mm-hmm. So she's kind of laying out her ideology and Helen lays out hers and says, like, if if I were you, I would get a gun and fight for him. Um, he's yours, you know, like, 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 the, so, so um, I, I really like those, those sort of two worldviews coming together. And then we see one of my favorite moments is when we see them riding in the, the carriage across town and Amy doesn't even look back at will and Helen is like laser focused on him. So even as the cart passes, she keeps mm-hmm. turning to look at him Um and we see them go to the go to the train. So they, I mean, I love the even the image that they're getting on the train that Frank Miller is getting off of. So this this thing that brings mm-hmm. this threat and this danger also brings the possibility. I kind of wish. I mean, the movie is what it is. But if those two had stayed on the train together, it's like I would have gone with them. Be like, I'd love to see the next chapter of this story. <laughs> the film and Louise. The exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, you know, the, the other thing I think is really important about that conversation between between the two women is that it's an it's another example of are you going to stand up for a print? You know, what's the role of a principle and what's the role of your personal connection? So so Amy has the principle that she's a pacifist, but then she, of course, has the, the personal connection to 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 Will Kane. So ultimately, you know, she has to pick up that gun and she has to make a choice. Uh, to protect her husband rather than kind of stand up for um, a, a noble but possibly abstract principle of nonviolence. Because in a situation like that, um, you want to say, well, I stayed true to my Quaker beliefs so for it. So as a result, I have a dead husband. Uh, so she has to learn, I think, a certain amount of flexibility uh, in order for her and Kane ultimately to have a life together. And, and and so all this builds up to then really the last act of this film. And the one thing we haven't mentioned that uh, is is a great feature of this film is the t- is the element of time. Uh, you see clocks all of the time. The film isn't exactly in real time, but it's pretty close, you know. And and you keep seeing clocks, and you're acutely aware that noon means something. And as we build towards noon, there. Um, there's actually, it's actually a great piece of editing where, where you're cutting to these different things. You're seeing the railroad tracks. And just like the uh, church bells like break that tension, now you have the train whistle breaking the tension. You see the train and you realize, okay, all of the stuff that this is being built towards, this is now happening. And we get this great crane shot of um, Will standing in the middle of the street, uh, which... Uh, uh, the the crane was a was a a loan from George Stevens, who we've talked about uh, in the past here. Um, so you get to, and and it's this it's the one moment where um, I feel like you get a different piece of filmmaking. You get this this specific shot where 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 it pulls up and you see how small Kane is in this city street, and and you know this looming thing is coming. Um, so I I I, I love that uh, that build up, and then with the first gunshot. 
that's where Amy sitting on the train, you know, kind of has her moment to act. Now, what was interesting about the final, the final showdown is again, I'm not as well-versed in Westerns, but I was expecting this to be, they're standing in the middle of the street and they have a shootout. And instead it was, you know, much like in my darling Clementine, it's like a lot messier and it's a lot more kind of, you know, running around and, um, you know, it's, it's a much more complicated set piece than, you know, kind of the, I guess, cause there's four of them, but kind of the like gunslingers facing off in a duel kind of thing. I, I didn't, I didn't know what to expect from yet. Yeah. The, uh, the, the, the use, the use of the clocks is, um, you know, what's sometimes called durational realism. Uh, and it, it made sense that the film got uh, an Academy Award for editing because it, it is, it is you know, you realize, nah, this really couldn't have happened in 80 minutes, but they did a good job of making it seem that way. There actually was an earlier film uh, from 1949 called The Setup, directed by Robert Wise, who um, was, of course, the editor for Citizen Kane. And uh, that film probably does have truly durational realism. It's a story of a boxer played by Robert Ryan. It plays out over 90 minutes and it really does seem to be 90 minutes when you watch it. So I think that maybe Zinneman was uh, inspired a, a little a little bit by that. Um, I wanna say something about the train before I forget since you mentioned the train. Um, when the train is, I mean, I, I love those frequent shots of the tracks. I mean, it's a really, it's a really interesting way to create suspense. It's like every time they show the tracks, you're like, is the train going to come? Is the train going to come? So you'll notice when the train comes around the corner or when it comes on the track, it, and initially there's white smoke coming out of its stack. And then there's black smoke. Well, what Zinneman and the crew didn't know was that was a signal from the engineer on the train that the brakes were failing, that the train wasn't going to be able to stop. So they had a guy, of course, a cameraman on the tracks, filming this as the train came roll, rolling in. Um, and he realized at the last minute, evidently, this thing isn't going to stop. And he ro actually, he rolled out of the way successfully, but the camera was smashed. But fortunately, the magazine that contained the film was intact. So, oh, they, wow. still had, so they still had the film. They didn't have to reshoot it. So anyway, um, wh why they didn't know this meant the train wasn't going to stop, I don't know. But in the days before cell phones, they had no way of letting him know. So it could have been a tragic, a tragic ending, but, we got, he, but as, they, as they say, he got the shot. So mm -hmm. it's all good. There's a few interesting moments in the shootout. Um, one of them is when Will is in the stable and he he saves the horses from the yes. burning stable, yeah. um, which, which seemed like such a, because, because we've been to that, that stable earlier in the movie, mm -hmm. because that's where, where he and Harvey have their fight. Um, and, you know, there is this, I mean, that we talk about uh, in, in, you know, contemporary superhero movies, they talk about like the save the cat moment where it's like, there's a moment that tells you something else about this character that you're going to need to know later on. Now, this is, those are supposed to happen early in the movie. This happens towards the end of the movie, but like that little detail. So shows you something about Will Kane too, where, you know, where he is, even in that moment, he is being shot at uh, by two men. He's in a burning stable and his, um, his thought is to free those horses. And then that also becomes part of, it's actually a, visually a brilliant escape too, because you almost miss him on the one horse going by because he's lying down on the, the top of the horse. So it is both this heroic moment and a practical moment for, uh, for Kane. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes me think a little bit about the, the great Faulkner short story, Barn Burning, you know, where to burn down somebody's barn is kind of one of the, uh, one of the most egregious acts of, uh, of criminal behavior. Uh, and to do so without 
regard for the horses. You're right. But it's exactly the kind of thing you expect Will Cain to do. But of course, it also has a pragmatic element. He rides out on one of the horses. So, uh, so it, it helps him as well. Uh, and then there's, and then there, I mean, there's the, I think the Amy part of the, of the shootout is the, is the really significant one. I mean, her, it's one thing for her to come back. She comes back, she reads his will, which he has written. Um, and then, you know, we have that, uh, that, that great moment where she's looking out the window and you see Pell's gun hanging there. So you become very aware, like, okay, the, the choice is visually laid out in front of you that she has to make. Um, and I, I feel like it makes her a really complicated character too because you know we don't really other than her um you know happiness that they that they both made it through this like we don't get to hear her processing you know it's one thing to say like i i'm a pacifist and i don't want my husband to go do this it's another thing to pull the trigger yourself um you know so like like what's interesting is like she'll always that'll always be part of her you know, so so I I feel like like that's such an interesting moment in that character who I I pretty firmly believe her convictions, but needing to or or sensing she needs to compromise those those convictions in that moment. I, I actually I really thought that was a that was a strong moment. And then even when she's taken hostage by Frank Miller, he or she she is a, a major piece of how that final killing happens, right? Because she. Mm-hmm. fights back against him and creates this opportunity like she right. hits him or scratches him in the face so he turns to throw her away and that's where um where will gets the opportunity so like i feel like she plays such an important role in that and it's one of those things where like i would love to in the same way i'd love to follow amy and helen on that train ride i'd love to follow will and amy on that <laughs> uh horse carriage ride to be like okay an hour later what is she saying about what happened what is she thinking <laughs> I, I like i i feel like that's such a rich uh, a rich piece of this. And, and, and I also think it's important that even though at one level, as you talked about, the film is about um, asserting the value of, of heroism and integrity. It also reaffirms that really no hero can act completely alone. You know, so if Will doesn't have the community behind him, he actually has, he has Amy behind him. And so I think that it avoids, I mean, he's not a superman. So, you know, I mean, and, and, you know, he gets wounded in the fight and um, he, he shows that he's vulnerable at the same time that he's heroic, which makes him, I think, obviously all, all the more heroic. And that's often the story of the hero. The hero is either the reluctant hero or the hero who has to fight against um, natural human frailty. And so you, I think you see that in him, which makes him even more attractive. And then we get the final scene of the town coming around them him dropping the badge in the dirt, not dropping his gun in the dirt. No, I will, no. I will, I will mention um, because, because when the first time he leaves, he leaves his badge and his gun this time he leaves and he drops the badge um, and they, they ride off. Well, it's, um, a, it's, a, it's a classic situation because, you know, even though he's won and saved the town, I mean, yes, he's leaving because his leaving is already predetermined, but even if his leaving wasn't predetermined, he could not stay in that community having discovered that that in fact is not a community that supports him the way he needs, he needs support. So it's a Pyrrhic victory uh, mm-hmm. in that sense. Um, uh, we talked about how, you know, John Wayne thought this was a, was an un-American uh, movie. We talked about why that was um, as I was reading about this uh, Howard Hawks made Rio Bravo in some ways as a response to this. Uh, mm-hmm. um, so as, as he talked about it, uh, this is, this is a quote from Hawks. I made Rio Bravo because I didn't like high noon. Neither did Wayne. 
Uh, I didn't like a good town marshal was going around like with the chicken, like a chicken with his head cut off, asking him for help. And who saves him? His Quaker wife. That isn't my idea of a good Western. Um, <laughs> is is Rio, Rio Bravo? That's the one with um, with Dean Martin and Ricky Nelson, along with John Wayne. Is that right? Yeah. And Andy okay. There. Yeah. Yeah. I I've never seen that. How uh, is there a way you can briefly tell us how that's a response to this? No, because we're going to watch it next week. Okay, great. Well, okay, that, that's a good setup. Because I was going to say, I kind of want to watch Rio Bravo yeah. now. Because because I want to. I reading that quote, I'm like, all right, what is what is what is what are Hawks and Wayne doing there? So that's that's actually I'm thrilled to hear about that. <laughs> uh, so so in response to this, and and you read part of this quote, but there's another there's a continuation of it that I find really interesting mm-hmm. uh, and personal to me. So Zinneman said, I'm rather surprised at Hawks at Hawks and Wayne's thinking. Sheriffs are people and no two people are alike. The story of high noon takes place in the old West, but is really a story about a man's conflict of conscience. In a sense, it is a cousin to a man for all seasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and, and a man for all seasons is one of my favorite movies. And, and I, and I, and when I read that, I thought, Oh yeah. I mean, obviously this <laughs> comes out 16 years before a man for all seasons, but there is this, um, there's a reason why I was drawn to this. And there's a reason I'm drawn to a Thomas More type figure mm-hmm. because it is about like, I have, multiple loyalties and convictions and i'm trying to figure out how do i navigate those and still be the person that i'm that i feel like i'm supposed to be um so how do you how do you maybe live a life with as little compromise as possible but understanding sometimes that there may be some you know yeah like i i i I, when i read that i thought oh i like i like uh zinnemann i think i like his way of thinking (laughs) Uh, yeah, so uh, back to what you, back to the beginning of, of that of that quote. Yeah, Zinnemann says something like, uh, you know, I, I admire Howard Hawks, but I wish he'd leave he'd leave my phones he'd leave my films alone. Um, you know, one of the things other things I want to I want to mention with with Zinnemann is we've in a lot of the, as we've been doing the series of westerns, we've been talking about. Uh, some of the directors who came back from World War II. So it's kind of we've been trying to talk about how does um, how does the shadow of the war. Uh, how is it cast over this particular film? Uh, so in Zinnemann's case, uh, Zinnemann was, uh, was, an, was an Austrian born in what is now Poland. Um, and his, both of his parents uh, were killed in the Holocaust. And so it might be taking things too far to say this is, this is a Holocaust film, but it certainly is um, uh, what happened to his parents in the Holocaust, what happened to the Jews in the Holocaust made him really interested in the notion of what does it take to stand up against evil? So I think for him, rather than seeing it as a, as a HUAC film, I think he saw it as a Holocaust film in terms of Will Cain represents the kind of person of conscience who goes against a population that has proven to be, uh, to be cowardly or just unwilling to stand up for, for the right. Well, and how easy it is for people who are otherwise appear to be good people how how easily it is for them to slip into compromise you know i think that that's like just how tenuous the things that feel like they're holding our society together um things that see that might feel pretty permanent how those things actually can uh can collapse rather quickly i think is you know and and that's that's sort of the um the ancient Athens story that he tells uh, that the judge tells tells as well. Now, um, this movie is also uh, a favorite of of many U.S. presidents. Uh, Eisenhower screened this at the White House. Apparently, Bill Clinton screened this movie 17 times during his eight years in office. Ronald uh-huh. Reagan says it's one of his favorite films. Um, 
uh, like I said, I think this, I think this is one of the most American films I've ever, I've <laughs> ever seen in terms of those values. Why do you think this is the kind of film that, um, that people in either party, you know, uh, <laughs> as, as presidents would look at and say, this is, this is a film which speaks to me. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned Eisenhower and Reagan because I don't think either of them would be accused of being communist sympathizers. Um, well, I, 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 to me, I think it's kind of obvious, especially if you're a president. I mean, you are all so often faced with situations where you have to decide, you know, how do I take an unpopular stand? Or, you know, we live in a democracy and yet I think this is the right thing to do and a majority of my citizens disagree with me. It seems to me it's the archetypal the archetypal film, if you're a political leader uh, or a leader, actually a leader of any kind. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could think that anybody in the position of leadership can um, uh, identify with Will Kane. Absolutely. Anything else you want to talk about with this? Question? I just want to touch it with something I said towards the beginning, Sam, and that is that um, the significance of this film historically for the Western. Uh, one, uh, one film critic, uh, Kim Newman, has said it's the most influential Western of the 1950s because uh, it changed the whole vision of the, of the Western genre. So the very thing that, um, that John Wayne hated about it, for, exa- for example, the fact that it shows uh, that the civilized people actually behave in a very uncivilized way. Uh, and then the other thing we touched on was the significance of the role of women. Um, so, you know, maybe this leads to a film, a really weird Western film like Johnny Guitar, uh, with, uh, where, where there's a very, very significant role for women or 40 guns with Barbara Stanwyck. I mean, later in the fifties, you get all kinds of films where, and, and, and we'll see, you know, Angie Dickinson and Rio Bravo. So I think that the film really helps the Western turn a corner. And, uh, and that was interesting for me. I really hadn't thought about that. I thought, you know, we're going to watch High Noon kind of a quote, classic Western, but it's definitely a classic Western in a very different vein from other quote, classic Westerns. Absolutely. Well, I think I know where this question's going, but what do you have for us for next week? Yeah, yeah, we are. Surprise, surprise. Uh, I, I, this wasn't my plan, but after watching High Noon, I thought, let's not just talk about Rio Bravo as a response. Let's watch Rio Bravo because people love Rio Bravo. Uh, and also, we have to try to redeem Howard Hawks in your eyes, uh, Sam, since um, bringing up baby was such a disappointment for you. Uh, I, think, I think we need to try a different Howard Hawks film and see how he does. Oh, I'm very excited about this. And in part because um, back in spring of 2020, right before COVID, right before we started this podcast, we were in, my family was in Tucson, Arizona, and we went to old Tucson, which is the the kind of movie ranch there where I think big chunks of Rio Bravo were filmed. So I'm very excited to see if, if that is in fact the case, I'm very excited to see some locations I've been to uh, in the, in this film. So that should be very exciting. Well, Barrett, uh, thank you so much for uh, for recommending this film and for having this conversation. I, I think this is really a this is really a great uh, a great movie and a a great movie to talk about to unpack. I think I've talked before about movies that I think teach well. I could I could imagine using this in a classroom um, mm-hmm. and getting and getting a good conversation out of students about this movie about the choices people make and about how this movie works as an allegory or an analogy for the time that it was created, but also a kind of human analogy, human allegory. Like there's lots of ways, you know, you can think about, um, you, you know, you could think about where you see versions of this story. So this is a very rich text and uh, I'm excited to continue to think about it and to think about it in conversation with Rio Bravo next week. So that is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about Rio Bravo in the videos. Mm-hmm.